Hey, so we are beginning week 13 of this, excuse me, 15 of this study. We're in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 28 today. And just to give you a little bit of a framework of where we've been, remember, there's this theme verse that we've been looking at for the past few weeks. And the theme verse is from 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. We'll put it up on the screen here. It says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. This is a book about pursuit. It's about people pursuing things, but it's about a bigger story of God pursuing us. And God was on the search for a person who would represent him. And the phrase is used, and we've talked about this a couple times, the phrase is used, a man after God's own heart. And in the last few couple of months, we've, we've really covered the ground that that means both a person who is moving towards God, they are after God, and a person who is trying to be like God after God, a person who is, who is after God, and a person who takes after God. Those are the two basic ideas. And about halfway through the book, we identified that it was this guy named David, that Saul, we all thought, might be that guy, but he wasn't that guy. Samuel, we thought, might be that guy. But he wasn't that guy, not because he failed, but just because he wasn't the guy for the time, but David was. And in the last few weeks, what we've been doing is we've been following David and Saul on a parallel journey where David has been crowned to be the king. He's received the Holy Spirit of God. He is walking with God, or at least he's supposed to be. And Saul is actually the king, but he's afraid that David is a threat to him. And so Saul is trying to kill David. But as they're going on this parallel journey of David is running away and Saul is trying to pursue David, as they're going on this parallel journey, we've seen time and time again where David will, out of his own fear or whatever, try to preserve himself through some mechanism that he devises, and he will begin to fail, but someone will catch him on it. He will realize what he's doing. He will turn around. He will turn back to God, and he will make things better. And this is the journey of David constantly. He's on this pathway where he's taking matters into his own hands, but then someone will challenge him on the impending failure of his strategy or the failure that's already happened, and then he will turn back towards God, and things will then turn around for him. But Saul, we have seen repeatedly do the opposite. Saul is a person who, like David, is trying to preserve his own reputation, preserve his own life, preserve any number of things about himself and his position. And as he takes matters into his own hands, he goes farther and farther down this rabbit hole of destruction. And people come at him and are like, Saul, this is bad. This is a bad choice. But he just doubles down and continues on that path of destruction. Now, last week, we noticed that the writer of 1 Samuel had done the same thing where he took the story of David and the story of Saul and put them parallel to each other. But he split each one of these stories into two halves. And so he went, David's story, Saul's story, David's story, Saul's story. And so what we did last week is we took the David story out of that section and dealt with it together. And today we're going to take the Saul story out of that section and deal with it together. And so we're going to be doing chapter 28, and then we're going to skip over 29 and 30 and also deal with 31, the last chapter of the book. So last week was David, this week was Saul. And there was a lesson I gave you last week that is basically the same lesson we're going to deal with this week. I phrased it this way last week. I said, when you're confronted with a failure, you need to turn toward God and re-embrace service. 
When you're confronted with a failure, you need to turn toward God and embrace service. If you have failed in something, you have probably failed God and you have probably failed some people around you. And so the response is to go back to God and acknowledge your failure, but then also go to the people around you and start serving them again. It's not good enough to just go up to a person and be like, hey, you know that thing I did that ruined your life? Sorry, and then walk away. You know, you have to do something to serve that other person. And so by turning towards God and embracing service, you then put yourself back in this place where God can lead you and where God wants you to be. Now, we're going to learn the exact same lesson this week, but from the negative perspective. We're going to see Saul absolutely fail and not turn towards God. We're going to see Saul fail and not serve the people around him. And we're going to see the destruction that comes into Saul's life. It's a tragic ending. It's an ending like Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet or something where you can see the person on this trajectory to destruction and every part of you just wants to say, just get this one right, turn this one around, fix this one problem, stop dealing with your fatal flaw and just accept what is right. But no, they don't. Saul's fatal flaw, and we've seen it time and time again, is that he's trying to preserve his own life. He's trying to preserve himself. And Jesus tells us in the New Testament, anyone who tries to save his life will lose it, but the one who loses his life for the sake of what God's up to in this world will find it. And Saul is a perfect illustration of the person who seeks his own life and loses it. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick it up in 28, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to kind of just work our way through that chapter, and you're going to see some crazy stuff. And we're going to talk through today some very difficult things. Um, We're going to, just by way of warning, we are going to be talking about suicide today because Saul commits suicide. Spoiler alert, he kills himself at the end of the book. That's how tragic this story gets. Um, but we're also going to be talking about a whole lot of other things. So just to make sure you're, you're aware of where we're going. But we pick it up in chapter 28. Remember, these chapters are arbitrary. But it's important for, us, important for us to see what we actually read last week all over again. It says this, In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, remember Achish is the king of the Philistines, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. And I'm going to skip over that. This is just David and Achish having this thing because remember last week, David's failure was that he lied, deceived, and took up arms to help the enemy. He was working with the Philistines for a period of time. Well, Achish and his men kind of wake up and they're like, we don't want David with us. And so they kick David out. They send David home eventually. But at the very beginning of 28, this reminds us that the Philistines are setting up camp to fight against Israel. They're preparing to go against Israel. We pick it up again in verse 3. It says, now Samuel was dead and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. Now, that's a weird sentence. Don't you think that's a weird sentence? Like, Samuel's dead, and Saul has gotten rid of all of the psychics. He's gotten rid of all the mediums. He's gotten rid of all the spiritists. He's gotten rid of all the occultists. It's a weird thing because, see, if Samuel is dead, you want to get 
a person who represents God. But Saul is so upside down and backwards that he hasn't reached out for God. The only thing he's even come close to doing is getting rid of the evil. Now, this is really important that we clarify this, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this in just a moment. But there was this law that God had given to Moses a long time ago. And God said to Moses, there's one kind of spiritual individual in this world that I want you to spend any attention on. There's one kind of spiritual individual. It is a person who represents me, God says. There's only one God, and so therefore a person who represents God is the only spiritual individual who needs to be paid attention to. Now, they come in slightly different forms. There's a priest version. There's a prophet version. And Samuel was a judge version. The king is supposed to be a person who's representing God in certain aspects. But nonetheless, a person who represents God is the only person they should be paying attention to. And the mediums and spiritists, they paid attention to either other gods or the idea of ancestor worship, or spirits or demons or something like that. And so God said, all of those people, I don't want to be involved in your, co- in your community. Those people shouldn't be operating, and as we'll find out later today, it's because they're frauds. They're fake. Uh, but God says, I don't want any of them to be operating. And so Saul, we are told in this story, has kicked out all of these people. And it's just weird, because it's out of left field. Sure, it's technically the right thing. According to the Moses law, it's technically the right thing for Saul to have kicked him out. But it's just out of left field. It's weird. So keep reading and let's see what happens. It says, now uh, the Philistines, verse 4, the Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who's a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. And there you go. This is the biblical reference to the location known as Endor. So all you Star Wars fans out there, whether you actually think it's the moon or the planet that the moon is orbiting around, Endor is a real location in ancient Israel where there was a witch, where there was a medium. And this is fascinating because A, Saul says to his men, I now want to go talk to a medium. B, the men know where one is. C, she's still operating. So Saul can't even get the thing right that he was doing. You know the, that verse, that weird verse where it says Saul had kicked out all the mediums? Now we realize that he didn't do a very good job of it. Saul is so weird of a character. It's like even when he's trying to do the right thing, he doesn't get it done right. And then, to top it off, it's not just that she's still operating and she's in Endor. It's that now Saul wants to go to her. Oh, and this story is just the weirdest. I'll read it in just a moment, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to deal with a bigger question first. The question is, why is God sometimes silent? I know that's a question you and I have thought about a lot. And here's Saul. Samuel's dead. 
he knows he's supposed to kick out all the mediums, and so he did. But it says specifically that Saul had inquired of the Lord, and the Lord did not answer him. And we've said this for a number of weeks. We're like, Saul's problem is that he never reaches out to God. David eventually reaches out to God. Saul never does. But now, the text tells us that he did. And God didn't answer. So the question is going to be, why does God stay silent? But before we get to that question, we're going to ask a framework question to begin to give ourselves the the perspective that we need to answer that bigger question. And the the framework question, the, the smaller question is this, how does God speak? When God speaks, how does he speak? Well, in this passage, we are actually given a list. Did you notice that? It says that Saul inquired of the Lord and God didn't answer him whether by, and then it gave us three things. The three things it mentioned were dreams, the Urim, and the prophets. So I want you to write these things down. One way that God speaks is through dreams. One way that God speaks is through the Urim, which in the time was a a reference to the priests. Now, remember, I told you this before, the priests had this garment called an ephod, and in the garment, it was like a special garment that only the priests wore at special times, and in the garment, on the chest area, there, were, there was a pouch that held two implements called the Urim and the Thummim, and we don't know what they are, they're like stones, probably, um, they might have been the things that you would use to cast lots, which, if you're not familiar with how ancient lot casting worked, it's basically like you have, um, you have two stones and you paint one stone, you paint both of them white on one side and black on the other side. And so then you take these stones and you roll them, and if they're both white, the answer is yes. If they're both black, the answer is no. And if they're either or, then the answer is indecisive, inconclusive. And so one way the ancient people would try to determine the will of the gods was to take these lots and say, ask God a question, and then they'd throw the lots on the ground and they'd get a yes or a no or a maybe or inconclusive or something. Maybe that's how the Urim and the Thummim worked. What we know is that these were a special set of tools that God had given to the priests in Israel so that they could use something to determine God's will when they needed to on that moment's basis, whatever it was. Maybe they were lots, maybe they were something different. We don't totally know, but we know that God had given them to the priests. And so it wasn't magic rocks, it was the priests who were actually the ones communicating God's will to the people. And they just had this implement that God had given them the ability to use. But then the third one was prophets, right? The third one was prophets. And it says God did not speak to Saul, whether through dreams or through the Urim or through prophets. Now... Prophets are those people who will somehow receive the word of God directly. And so we might add a parenthesis. If you're taking your own notes, you might want to add a parenthesis down there. That the prophets receive God's word through visions sometimes. Sometimes they receive God's word through um, something called a theophany. A theophany is an appearance of God in some physical form. When Moses is talking to the burning bush, the fire around the bush claims that it is God. Um, It says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, I am who I am. And so the voice that comes out says it is God. When Moses, excuse me, when Abraham is talking to the angel that's uh, threatening to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, 
Abraham is talking to this angel, and it's called the angel of the Lord. And then at the end of that story, Abraham refers to the angel as Yahweh, as if the angel was some kind of physical embodiment of God come to the earth. So their visions, their theophanies, these are some of the ways that God would speak through prophets. Uh, and then, of course, angels, as we've mentioned. But there are three main ways. Three main ways. Dreams priests, prophets. And I want to ask you a question. Why does God not speak in any of these three ways to the king of Israel? Well, again, we can't answer that yet. We have to next ask the question of how did Saul inquire? The passage tells us that Saul inquired of the Lord. So now let's ask the question, how would Saul have done his inquiry? Okay, let's think through this. Let's work backwards. Prophets. Let's say Saul wanted to get some information from a prophet. Well, Samuel's dead. Bummer. And we know of one other prophet who's still alive, and his name is Gad. And we know he's alive because he has been giving David some instructions. And later on, we will find in 2 Samuel, the book of 2 Samuel, we will find that Gad is David's personal prophet. He goes around with David wherever David goes. And so there is a prophet in the area, but he's with David. So clearly Saul did not inquire of the Lord by talking to the prophet. Well, what about the priest? This whole Urim thing. Okay, so Saul could have gone to a priest, right? Nope, he couldn't have done that. You know why? Because he killed them all. Saul had previously slaughtered all the priests, except for one of them named Abiathar, who had the ephod and the Urim and the Thummim with him, and he is with David. So Saul could go to the priest, but the priest is with David. Well, what about this whole dream thing? How would Saul have maybe been in a place where he could dream a dream, a visionary dream from God? What would need to happen there? Well, Saul would probably need to be asleep, right? He'd probably need to be rested somehow. And we have been told that Saul has been tormented by an evil spirit for multiple chapters now. And the only time he has ever found any rest is when David played his harp. Saul needs somehow to relax so that he could even be in a place where he could hear God speak to him through a dream if God wanted to do that. And yet he can't because the harp is with David. If you haven't noticed yet, everything Saul needs to hear the voice of God is with David. So the question is, how did Saul inquire of the Lord? My assumption is that his inquiry of the Lord had nothing to do with the way you're supposed to inquire of the Lord. My assumption is that his inquiry of the Lord was kind of the way you and I inquire of the Lord. You know what I mean? You've just arrived at some location, you park the car, and as you slam the car door with an angry attitude in your heart and mind and face, you slam the car door and you say, God help me with this person. Yeah, that's, that's the kind of inquiry we do. You know what I mean? You know, as a matter of fact, the writer of First Chronicles, when he retells this story, because this story is told a second time, when he retells the story of Saul, he doesn't even call it an inquiry. Take a look at this. First Chronicles chapter 10, 
Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance. We're getting there. And did not inquire of the Lord. Whatever Saul did to quote-unquote inquire of the Lord, it wasn't really inquiring of the Lord. And he could never have heard God's response anyway because God's response was over with David. So let's just think through this for a little bit. What could David, what could Saul have done? Well, if he wanted to talk to a priest, he could have talked to a priest. He just needs to make peace with David, the guy he's trying to kill. The guy who has repeatedly said, Saul, I don't hold a grudge against you. Saul, I forgive you. Saul, stop chasing me and we're all good. Saul, stop chasing me and I'll come back into the service of the king. All Saul needs to do is make peace with David. And David has already opened the door. What if if Saul wanted to talk to a prophet? He could talk to a prophet. All he needs to do is make peace with David. What if Saul wanted a good night's sleep? He could get a good night's sleep. All he has to do is talk to David. You see what's going on here? So now, the big question. Why is God silent? I hope at this point in time, you're not going to blame God for why he's silent. I hope at this point in time, when you look at the story, you're like, no, God has absolutely every reason to be silent because God is ready to speak. Saul is just nowhere near hearing it. So here's a couple thoughts. Why is God sometimes silent in our lives? Here are just a couple thoughts from the story of Saul. The first one is because maybe we failed to honestly seek him. Maybe it's because we failed to honestly seek him. We thought we were seeking God, but what we were really doing is we were just, you know, playing, paying lip service to the idea of God. Maybe we failed to honestly seek him. That's Saul's problem. Secondly, maybe it's because we've got broken relationships. We are told time and time and time and time again in Scripture that God cares more about your relationship with the people around you than he does with your religious service to him. It shows up in the Old Testament. It shows up in the New Testament. It shows up all over the place. If you have a broken relationship with another person, why would God want to speak into your life until you reconcile with that other person or at least you attempt to reconcile with that other person? One of the reasons God can be silent is because we have a broken relationship. There's even this passage uh, that Peter, the apostle Peter wrote in one of his letters, where he says to men that they need to be better in the way they treat their wives or else God won't listen to their prayers. It's a fascinating passage. Sometimes God is silent because I've got a broken relationship with someone. And sometimes I think God is silent because he already knows you're not going to listen. He already knows we won't listen. What we're about to see is God breaking a lot of rules, a lot of his own rules, to finally speak to Saul. And when he does, Saul doesn't listen. This is powerful. God is about to speak, and it's going to happen in a way that you cannot believe. And it involves a witch who lives in Endor. Let's get into it. Here we go. Verse 8. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes. And at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. 
But the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Now, listen. This woman is actually afraid of her life, which means what Saul is doing here is exploitative. He is exploiting her for his own whims. And this is the second time he's done it. First, he's threatened her life. Now, he's causing her to fear for her life. Verse 10, Saul swore to her by the Lord. What good is Saul swearing by the Lord going to do? Anyway, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. It's just such a, it's such a mess. The way Saul thinks through his situations, it's just such, such a mess. Like he could talk to Gad the prophet, he could talk to the priest, he could talk to David. He, but he goes to a medium and wants to talk to dead Samuel. Look at verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like? He asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. This is nuts. This is one of those passages in the Old Testament where most people who have my job don't talk about because it's just too weird. A witch from Endor is raising a dead man back to life somehow, some way. This is too weird. Commentaries. I've been to seminary. I've read commentaries. And you won't believe how many people are like, well, it might be this or it might be this other thing. And it's so hard to know what's actually going on in this place because is Samuel actually dead? Is his spirit actually alive? Can this witch bring him back to life somehow? Can this witch talk to dead people? What's going on? Especially because God had already told us that mediums and spiritists should be outlawed. They should be prevented. That they're all frauds. And now all of a sudden this woman seems to be somehow doing it right. And it's like, whoa, so many things. Okay, so I'm going to help you analyze that just a little bit. I'm going to give you some academic information about some of this stuff to help you, I think, in the future, and also to give you a little bit of ammunition the next time you watch some paranormal movie with ghosts and whatnot in it, because now you'll, now you'll know. First of all, here is the fact you need to know. Dead people, yes, are still alive. Dead people are still living. And I will demonstrate that to you in a few specific ways by reading a whole bunch of stuff from the book of Luke in the New Testament. Quoting from Jesus. This is Luke chapter 23, verse 34. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus answers this guy and he says, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you know where this happens? Do you know when this is going on? This is Jesus hanging on a cross next to another guy who's hanging on a cross. And this guy next to him on the cross says, Jesus remembers me when you enter your kingdom. Because this guy on the cross thinks that one of these future days, this guy next to him who's going to die is still going to have a kingdom. He thinks he's going to be dead, but this other guy's going to have a kingdom. And he's just like, remember me, you know? But Jesus doesn't say, no, no, I don't have to remember you. There's a thing that's going to happen after you're dead. There's a thing that's going to happen after I'm dead. 
There's a thing called paradise. That's where I'm going to go. And uh, guess what? That's where you're going to go too. So guess what, dude? You're going to be with me like today, probably a couple hours now. So hang in there, but we're going to be there today. Jesus is saying to the guy on the cross next to him that today, after he's dead, he will be somewhere and it will be paradise. And it will be somewhere where he has relationship because Jesus says, with me. Interesting. Now, let's look at another one that Jesus says. The next one we have is from Luke chapter 16, verse 22 and 23. It says this. Jesus is speaking, and he's telling a story. He says, there's a time that came, and this is a, this is a fictional story. Jesus is not telling us about an actual beggar and an actual rich man. He's telling us a fictional story. But he would only tell us a fictional story with this stuff in it if it has some connection to reality that Jesus knows better than we do. And it says this. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Abraham's been dead for a long time. I mean a long time. And so now this guy's going to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And then Jesus tells the story of a conversation that that man has with Abraham. That somehow he's conscious, somehow he's able to experience pain, somehow Lazarus is able to experience something pleasurable, something, somehow Abraham is able to communicate. Abraham has been dead a long time. And yet Jesus is claiming that in this fictional story, which I think he is trying to say is based on some measure of reality, that after this guy is dead, he is talking to Abraham, who has also been dead for a long time. Luke chapter 20. Take a, take a look at this one. Luke chapter 20, verse 38. Jesus says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. This is again in the book of Luke. Someone said to Jesus, hey, you know, this whole resurrection thing doesn't make sense. How can a person die and then come back to life later? And Jesus says, hang on a second. You don't even know how to read your Bible. Because in the Bible, it says God is the God of the living. And in the Bible, when Moses was standing at the burning bush, Jesus says, when Moses was at the burning bush, the voice in the bush said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus makes the conclusion from that, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must still be alive in the day of Moses, just not physically present on the planet. Because God wouldn't say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if they were completely annihilated, dead and gone. Jesus makes the point that because God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. Because with God, dead people are still alive. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm just reading what he said. Here's another one. Let's look at this last one from Mark chapter 9. Jesus says this, or it's not just Jesus talking, it's something that happens to Jesus. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them, and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And this is fascinating. This is Jesus. He's on the top of a mountain. And this is a moment that we call the transfiguration because it's when uh, Peter, James, and John get to see J Jesus in some kind of heavenly glory. And as they're looking at Jesus, he's like glowing brightly, like insanely brightly. And then Moses and Elijah show up and they start talking with Jesus. This is weird. Elijah never died. He was sucked up to heaven in some magical way. But Moses died and he was buried on top of a mountain. And now Jesus is talking to him like they're old friends, like they've had previous conversations. 
Like maybe for the past 4,000 years, Jesus and Moses have been hanging out. Then Elijah showed up a couple thousand years later, and he's like, hey, Elijah, let me introduce you to my bud Moses. Cool dude. They built a friendship. And then when Jesus is up on that mountain, those guys come back. And this is weird, because Moses died, Elijah didn't, and so there we've got two different means and mechanisms of someone being able to come back. Here's the point. Yes, dead people are still alive. Their soul somehow is still alive. And yes, somehow, when God chooses to do such a miracle, a dead person, like Moses, can show up and talk to you. Now, I want to be very clear about this. To the knowledge of the entirety of the Bible, this happens a total of twice. It happens with Jesus on the mountain talking to dead Moses. And it happens here with Saul somehow talking to dead Samuel. But before we get to that, I need to give you a couple other things to help you understand what's going on here. Secondly, I already told you dead people are still alive. Secondly, mediums and spiritists are, in fact, fake. You know how I know that? Because when Samuel shows up in this story, it freaks the lady out. Did you see that? Did you see that? He says, bring up Samuel. And then the text says, when she saw Samuel, she screamed at the top of her lungs. And then realized that this guy standing next to her must be so important that God would actually bring Samuel somehow. And that's how she recognized that the guy standing next to her was Saul. Because the most important person in the entire area, in the entire land, Samuel's now dead, the most important person in the entire land is Saul. And so for something like Samuel to show up for this woman, she's like, oh, you must be Saul. Now I'm really scared. But the fact of the matter is, this woman has never before in her life ever seen or heard from a dead person. Every previous time it had just been fake. Every previous time it had just been her messing with some ingredients and trying to convince people that she knew what she was doing, trying to convince herself that she knew what she was doing. But here in this moment, Samuel shows up and she freaks out. She's never experienced that before. This is a brand new experience. Oh, and here's the third um, point that I want to highlight for you, and it's this. God is okay using donkeys. Are you familiar with this story? There's this Old Testament story where this guy named Balaam has uh, been hired to say some mean things against Israel to like issue some curses over them. And so he's on his way to do that. And uh, he's riding a donkey. And then the donkey veers off to the side. And Balaam gets off the donkey. And he starts beating the donkey, get him back on the road. And then the donkey veers to the other side. And he gets off his donkey, starts beating his donkey to get him back on the road. And then donkey veers to the other side. And he, gets off, he starts beating the donkey again. Finally, the donkey speaks. And he's like, dude, stop it. Can you not see the angel about ready to kill you? And then it says his eyes are open, Balaam's eyes are open. And he sees this angel holding a sword standing in the way like he's about to he's about to kill him and so god has used a donkey before to smack around a stupid person he has used a donkey to bring some message of some divine thing to a person and just because she's a medium 
doesn't mean God can't use her too. In fact, what's interesting here is that Saul does not see Samuel. Did you notice that? He asks the lady to describe him. What's he look like? Saul can't see Samuel. Saul can't hear Samuel. Everything that's happening here with regard to Samuel's presence is something that only the woman is experiencing. It's something only she's experiencing. She has to narrate to Saul what's going on. And so now when we finally do hear Samuel's voice, it's probably coming through her mouth somehow. She's getting some sort of message from the specter of Samuel, and then she's reporting it to Saul. Maybe God allows Saul to hear Samuel at that point in time. We don't know how the mechanisms work. What we know is that God has for some reason chosen to do a miracle in this moment with a witch in Endor talking to a silly man named Saul. And now let's see what the message is. Verse 15. Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me either by prophets or by dreams. And he doesn't mention the priests because maybe Samuel knows that Saul has slaughtered all the priests because Samuel was still alive when Saul slaughtered all the priests. So I've called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel, I can just picture him shaking his head. Why do you consult me now? Now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy. The Lord, <laughs> the Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. The Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Dead person saying, hey, you're going to be with me. We're all going to be dead together in this place that you brought me up out of, anyway. Will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground. Filled with fear because of Samuel's words, his strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing at all that day and all that night. And Saul, I just got to make this quick comment because Saul just flabbergasts me. Everything about Saul just doesn't make sense to me because... Like the only thing Saul cares about is self-preservation, right? And he does such a bad job of it. Like he doesn't, he doesn't even eat. He's, he's going to this witch and he faints in front of her, not because he's scared of Samuel, but because he hasn't stupid eating all day. I mean, he's just hungry. Saul, I don't understand this guy. He can't even take care of himself, let alone a nation. He only cares about himself and he can't even do that right. Look at this, verse 21. When the woman came to Saul and saw that he was greatly shaken, she said, look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to do. Now please listen to your servant and let me give you some food so you may eat and have the strength to go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his men joined the woman in urging him and he listened to them. 
He got up from the ground and sat on the couch. The woman had a fattened calf at the house, which she butchered at once. She took some flour, kneaded it, and baked bread without yeast. Then she set it before Saul and his men, and they ate. That same night they got up and left. And I'm just thinking this whole story of how manipulative and exploitative Saul has been. He's taken advantage of this woman to the point where he's forced her to feed him and all his men, killing her best calf, making bread and all this stuff. How long does it take to butcher a calf and then make bread. Yeah, this is going to take like all night long she's working for them. Saul has been exploiting this woman. He's been exploiting Samuel. And for whatever reason, God chose to, spoke, chose to speak through all of that. God did some crazy miracle. Crazy miracle. But of course, Saul isn't going to listen to it. Because that's just the way Saul works. We're going to find at the end of the story, Saul's exploitative tendencies just don't get any better. Skip ahead to, verse 30, to chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them. And many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons. And they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, in Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. There's something about this passage, I mean, there are a couple things about this passage that just I find really, really deeply unsettling. I mean, the first thing is the, the suicide bit. You know, it was common for people in the ancient world who, when they were surrounded, they were a leader, an important person to commit suicide because then you could avoid torture. You know, then if the, if the enemy's caught up to you, they might torture you for a while before you were actually killed, and so to avoid torture, you might commit suicide. These days, uh, a spy might do the same thing. You've seen the movies where they have the little death capsule or whatever in their mouth or, or whatever. You've you got that idea. The thing about this story is that Saul's not afraid of torture. Did you notice? He literally uses the exact same phrase for death for what the Philistines are going to do to him and what he wants his armor bearer to do to him. It's the phrase, run me through. He's not worried about the Philistines torturing him. He's like, armor bearer, you run me through or else they're going to run me through. He uses the exact same phrase. He's also afraid that they're going to quote-unquote abuse him. But notice that abusing him comes after they have run him through. Because that's the way the ancient world worked. If you had a trophy, you took the trophy. After Goliath was killed, David cut off Goliath's head, and now he's got the Goliath head trophy that then was shown in Jerusalem or wherever the city Saul was. And, and this is going to happen too. After Saul is dead, they're going to take his body, and that's going to happen regardless of how he dies. What is Saul actually doing here? What he's actually doing here? He's not facing up to anything. He's trying to find the most cowardly way. He's trying to find the most exploitative way 
to get someone else to do the dirty work. And you know what I know by, why, why I say that? It's because the suicide isn't the part of the story that bothers me the most. Let's just go backwards a little bit. At the beginning of this battle, should Saul have expected to survive it? No! God had told him through magical Samuel coming up from the dead, God had told him that he was going to die, right? God had told him that his sons were also going to die. Here's my question. If Saul knew he was going to die, why did he let everybody fight around him? It's because Saul doesn't believe God. He doesn't trust God. And all he cares about is his own self-preservation. And so he will continue to put people around him and he will exploit all the soldiers of Israel. And then finally he'll run away. And then finally an arrow will catch him somehow. And then he will look at this other guy and he's like, you take care of me. I'm wounded. Just, just do it or else they'll come and then they'll get whatever Saul. The noble thing for him to do is one of two options. Option number one. When Samuel's there, you say these words. I have sinned. Samuel, you're my only link to God right now. And I have sinned. And I deserve whatever comes my way. But spare the nation, spare my sons. That's the noble thing to do. Or, if he can't go that far, the next noble thing to do is on that morning, walk straight out to the Philistine camp and say, we surrender. You can have me, but spare my men, spare my sons. Take our cities. We surrender. Saul has been told by God this is it for him. And even at that very final moment, he continues to exploit the people around him, taking matters into his own hands to preserve his own dignity. If the Philistines get him, he's been vanquished in battle. If he kills himself, Someone somewhere can claim it's noble. But look what happens next. Let's finish it up. Verse 5, when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. Because the armor bearer is more noble than Saul ever was. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled and the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And here, at the very end of this story, 
At the very end of this story, we get a glimpse, a reminder of the only thing Saul ever did in his kingship that was noble. Check this out, verse 11. When the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men marched through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh and they fasted seven days. Do you remember the story of Jabesh-Gilead? It was a long time ago. I mean, it was early on. It was way back in like chapter uh, 11. I don't know if you remember it, so let me remind you of what happens. Saul has just been appointed king. Like, I mean just been appointed king. And the people of Jabesh Gilead are now being threatened by an enemy power who has literally come to them and he says, I'm going to give you one day before I come back and I will slaughter you or... I will gouge out all of your right eyes and take you into slavery. And the people of Jabesh Gilead are afraid and they send off to Saul and they say, Saul, could you help? And this is remarkable because the people of Jabesh Gilead ages before had never helped in another battle. There was another battle that they failed to help in and now they're asking Saul to help. And Saul, this is what happens in 1 Samuel 11, verse 5 through 6. It says this, Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen and he asked, what's wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh Gilead had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. Those are words that are like the words of of Samson, you know, the great mighty warrior. And it says this, they told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. And then what happens is they win the victory. And after they win the victory, they come back together. And now it's time for everybody to recognize that Saul is this major military mighty man. And in verse 12, we read this. The people then said to Samuel, who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. There were some rebels. And now Saul is coming into his kingdom. Let's kill the rebels so that they don't ever have to say anything negative against Saul again. But Saul said, no. No one will be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. And in that one, one sentence... Saul had the most noble moment of his life. He rescued some people who didn't deserve it. And he showed mercy to people who didn't deserve it. And he gave God the credit. The high point of Saul's life was this moment right here. And then Samuel said to the people, come, let's go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. The reason I bring that up is because at the end of Saul's life, there was only one group of people to come and get his body. Only one group of people cared enough to come and prevent the disgrace or undo the disgrace on his body. Only one group of people. And is it surprising to know that it's the only group of people that Saul in his entire ministry had ever served. 
Listen, this is the, this is the negative lesson. David taught us last week, you know, when you fail, you're supposed to turn back to God and re-embrace service. And Saul never did that. But when he did, the one time, the one time he did, God gave him an incredible victory and established his kingdom. I want to encourage you the same way. I want you and me to be the kind of people who seek God, who serve others, and trust God for the victory. I want us to be the kind of people who seek God, serve others, and trust God for the results. I don't know what the results are going to be. I don't know if things are going to work out. But frankly, neither did Saul. Every time he tried to protect himself, it just got worse and worse for him. The only time it ever worked out for Saul, the only time, and the only time it will ever work out for us, is when we walk with God this way. We seek God, we serve others, and then we trust God for the outcome. That's it. That's it. That's the whole story. We seek God, we serve others, and we trust Him for the outcome. And it just might be that in that process we might see victory. Maybe it's victory for us. Maybe it's victory in the future. Maybe it's a victory we experience now. Maybe it's a victory we have to wait for. But if we seek God, serve others, and trust Him for the outcome, I think eventually it'll be victory. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, Check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.